Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 625 with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. I think you're going to love this conversation about how to find more happiness and thusly more effectiveness in your daily world from a true expert and master on the topics. You'll learn, one, why many ambitious people, hey, that's me, and maybe you, end up unhappy. Two, why chasing happiness won't, in fact, make you happier, and what will. And three, how to find your motivation in just five minutes. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to as we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP625. And if you want summary wisdom faster from the good Dr. Ben Shahar and others, I recommend you sign up for the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you a summarized version of the takeaways from this conversation in an email you can read in about three minutes or so. It's called The Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Tal's story. Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar is the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, as well as the creator and instructor of the Certificate in Happiness Studies and the Happier School programs. After graduating from Harvard with a BA in philosophy and psychology and a PhD in organizational behavior, Tal taught two of the most popular courses in Harvard's history, Positive Psychology and the Psychology of Leadership, and taught Happiness Studies at Columbia University. He is an international best-selling author whose books have been translated into more than 25 languages. Big thanks to Tal for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Tal. Tal, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be here. Well, I'm so excited to chat with you. I've read two of your books long ago and uh, so much good stuff to dig into. So maybe could you open us up with a bit of the background on how you became an expert and teacher on happiness? So I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard studying computer science, of all things, and I found myself in my second year doing well academically, uh, doing well in athletics, I played squash, doing quite well socially, and yet being very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because uh, in terms of what I'd learned until then, I checked all the boxes. I did everything that I thought I needed to do to be happy. And yet I was very unhappy. And I remember um, this was a, a very cold Boston morning. There are many of those. 
getting up and going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. The first question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate degree in philosophy and psychology, then um, studied education across uh, the pond in the other Cambridge, and then uh, back to Harvard for my PhD all the time, uh, asking how can I help myself, individuals, uh, couples, families, organizations, and ultimately nations increase levels of happiness. I actually did become happier as a result of my studies. And then I went on uh, to share what I'd learned and what I continue to learn with others. Well, that's great. I got a chuckle out of the uh, the about the author picture on the back of one of your books. You didn't look super cheery, <laughs> but you're smiling a lot today. So, so well, I'm smiling a lot today. At the same time, I'm not always cheery. Yeah. Uh, you know, happiness is not about a, a constant high. You know, that's a myth, an illusion. Okay. Well, well we're digging into that too. But I want to know, in your personal case, what did you discover was missing? Or it, for you, what was like the discovery or the practice or the thing that made a big difference for you? Yeah. So um, for, for me, the main thing was realizing that happiness doesn't come from success. You know, th this is the model that most people have uh, in their mind. They think that once you're successful, once you achieve your goals, once you reach the, the summit, the peak that you've been aiming for, then you'll be happy. Uh, that's a misconception. That's a misunderstanding of what a happy life is about. At best, success, uh, arrival, uh, achievement lead to a temporary high. Nothing more. Yeah, I remember in your books, you talked about often it's a relief as opposed to happiness that we experience in those victories. Yeah, exactly that. So it's a temporary relief. It's what, what, you know, what I describe as negative happiness. Why negative happiness? Because you need to go through a lot of uh, pain and, and suffering and uh, discontent. And when that goes away, you feel the relief and you mistake that relief for happiness. You know, it's a little bit like uh, having a, a terrible headache. And then, uh, you know, you take a pill and, and you feel better and, you know, it's such a relief. You're, you're, you're happy, but it uh, presupposes going through a lot of pain before. Okay. So one key thing for you was the distinction uh, associated with, with the relief and then the success, the achievement. Uh, any other key discoveries that made the impact for you? Yes. Yeah, so uh, an, an, another key discovery is about uh, goals in general. You know, there, there are essentially two um, dominant models when it comes to, to happiness. The first dominant model is it's all about achievement. It's all about uh, getting there, arriving at, the, at that peak. That, that's one model. It's future-oriented. Um, the other model is present-oriented. It's all about um, being in the here and now, being present. And when you can be fully present, that's when you can uh, be fully happy. And um, over the years, I shifted, as, as many people do, between the two models. And, and for a while, I thought, okay, it's all about finding a meaningful goal. And then for a while, I thought, okay, you know, 
you know, goals don't do it for me or for, for anyone as far as I can see. Let me just focus on the present. And in many ways, the future-oriented model is associated with the West. The present focus model is associated with the East. And what I've realized and what, what the research tells us is that actually we have to synthesize the two models. Uh, the challenge, of course, is, is how to do that. You know, how do you find the, the golden mean, so to speak? And, and the answer is that we need both, meaning we need to have a future goal. We are um, future-oriented creatures. Uh, we do need to have something that we strive for, something meaningful, significant in our life that we want to attain. We need that. At the same time, after we have that goal, then it's time to let it go. Then it's time to say, okay, I know where I'm going. I know my direction. I know where that peak is that I want to reach. And now I can just focus on the journey. Okay. And, and let, let me give you a personal example, which for me is, is very timely. So I have a book coming out um, on the 27th of April. That's the date that my publisher gave. So I have a very specific goal future goal. It's a personally meaningful goal, which is, which is uh, of course, important if we're concerned with happiness. So once I have that goal, I can let go of it. How do I let go of it? I say, okay, it's in the future. Now, what I need to do is spend three, four hours every day writing in the present moment. So this morning before this, I sat down for uh, over three hours and I wrote. When I wrote, I was in the present moment. I was focused on the here and now. I didn't constantly think, oh, April 27th, oh, I have to get to that mountaintop. Not at all. That, that played its role as far as I'm concerned. And now I can let go and focus on the present moment, on the here and now, which helped me enter a state of being fully present or a state that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi describes as flow. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Thank you. Well, so let's zoom out a little bit beyond your own experience. So you spend a lot of time with Harvard folks, <laughs> an ambitious bunch. Can you share, uh, our audience is also ambitious, any recurring observations associated with happiness and ambition that you saw over and over again that that uh, How to Be Awesome at Your Job listeners should know as well? Yeah, um, you know, very often, and th this is unfortunately quite common, we see very successful people. In fact, people whom we would describe as the most successful members of our society, uh, we see them uh, becoming depressed or, or addicted, whether it's alcohol or, or drugs, or even, in many cases, suicide. And the question is, why? Why does a person who seemingly... Uh, have it all, opt for, um, for drugs, alcohol, or, or suicide? And, and here lies the answer. It's because of the model, the false model, that they have internalized from a very young age. So let's take an example. So you have an individual whose dream it is to become a famous movie star. And uh, he is unhappy as, as, as a child, as a teenager, uh, as, as a young adult. However, through his unhappiness, he constantly and consistently tells himself, that's okay, because when I make it, when I become a famous movie star, then I'll be happy. So that belief 
sustains him. And uh, years go by, years where he's unhappy, however, continues towards the, uh, the goal. And then eventually he makes it and uh, he becomes a success. And suddenly he has more money than he knows what to do with. He can buy anything. And uh, he buys himself, you know, the, the, the best and the fastest car and the most beautiful uh, home in the most prestigious neighborhood. Then he can have any partner basically, that, that, that he wants. And uh, he's living the dream and he's finally happy. He has made it. And that lasts for a month, six months, maybe a year. And then very soon after he makes it, he goes back to where he was before, psychologically speaking, emotionally. He's once again unhappy. He's once again, in fact, miserable. Only this time, he doesn't have the illusion to sustain him, telling him that when you make it, then you'll be happy because he has made it. He's there, but he realizes there is no there there. And then he becomes despondent because you see the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. And he no longer has hope now. He no longer has hope that reality can provide him with happiness. So he looks for the answer outside of reality. What's outside of reality? Well, alcohol or drugs or the ultimate exit from reality, which is suicide. The belief the, that success or outcome or arrivals will make us happy, that's an illusion and it's a sinister illusion because it's causing millions and millions of people uh, around the world, uh, ambitious uh, uh, people, well-intentioned people to um to reach a, a dead end okay well that is powerful and well said thank you that rings true and and explains a lot of things all at once uh, i i want to shift gears for just a smidge so the goal of happiness in and of itself is is a great one I, I want to make a, a connection i'm thinking a little bit about some sean acor work with the uh, happy disadvantage can you share the linkage between being happy and being awesome at your job. Sure. So there is um, a lot of research that shows that success doesn't lead to happiness. But there is also a lot of research that shows that happiness does lead to more success. All right. Um, for example, if you increase levels of well-being, even by a little bit, I'm not talking radical transformation here. But if you increase levels of well-being by a little bit, creativity levels go up. We're more likely to think outside the box. We're, we'll be more innovative. Um, you increase levels of happiness even by a little bit. You become more uh, engaged, more productive, whether you're in school or, or in the workplace. Uh, increase levels of, of happiness and relationships improve significantly. Or you're thinking about the workplace, teamwork improves. Um, in school, grades go up. In organizations, uh, performance increases. Profits, revenues go up if you increase levels of well-being. Retention rates uh, go up. So happiness is a good investment. It's a good investment as an end in and of itself because it feels good to feel good. But it's also a good investment in terms of other uh, outcome measures, other uh, you know KPIs key performance indicators that, that organizations or uh, um, whether businesses or schools are interested in. Okay. Well, so 
a double whammy, being happy feels good and <laughs> increases performance. So let's let, dig in. And then how does one learn to become happier? What are some do's and don'ts, some practices to start and stop? Yeah, you know, Pete, the first thing that we need to keep in mind, remember, is what has been uh, coined the paradox of happiness. So what's the paradox? So on the one hand, you know, as as the studies have established, uh, happiness is good for us. So most people um, want to be happy, uh, again, because it feels good, because of all the other um, uh, benefits thereof. On the other hand, there's also research, and this is by Iris Moss and others, uh, showing that people who value happiness, in other words, people you know who get up in the morning and say, I want to be happy, uh, or happiness is important for me, they actually tend to be less happy. They actually tend to be uh, lonelier, and uh, loneliness is a very strong predictor of depression. So... We have a problem here that on the one hand, we are told and we know that happiness is good for us. We want it, therefore. On the other hand, we also are told that if we value it and it's important for us, then we're going to be less happy. So how do you resolve this uh, paradox? I mean, is it self-deception? Do you tell yourself, uh, you know, um, I actually don't want to be happier, wink, wink. You know, I actually do. Um, you know, that... that That's not the way to do it. What do we do then? How do we resolve this paradox? The way we resolve this paradox is that we pursue happiness indirectly. Okay. Let let me explain this. Let me explain this uh, starting with an analogy. Think of the following analogy. Um, The sunlight, you're looking at the sunlight. What happens? It hurts. It burns. Unpleasant. So instead of looking directly at the sunlight, what you can do is break the sunlight down and look at it indirectly. So how do you break it? You break it using a prism. And then you look at the colors of the rainbow and you can savor them and and enjoy looking at the sunlight indirectly. In the same way, pursuing happiness directly, uh, that's unhealthy, unhelpful. But what if you break down happiness and then pursue those elements that make up happiness, then you're pursuing happiness indirectly. Now, this insight was uh, actually uh, described by John Stuart Mill 160 years ago. Uh, Today, we have the research to back it up. So we know that if we get up every day and say, I want to become happier, we'll actually become less happy. However, if I pursue the elements that make up happiness... For example, a sense of meaning in my work um, or at home, or if I pursue relationships, which are one of the elements of happiness, that's pursuing happiness indirectly. And that resolves the paradox, and that can actually lead us to becoming happier. Okay, well, so let's, let's talk about elements. Is there a collectively exhaustive set of these elements. We've got meaning, we've got relationships. If, if there's a, a red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, you know, lay it on us. What are the other colors? Uh, exactly. So what are the colors of the metaphorical rainbow? My colleagues and I have been obviously work, working on this for, for a long time and, and looking at uh, uh, positive psychology, however, also looking at 
general psychology as well as philosophy and theology and, and literature and neuroscience, we have um, created a model that brings together the different elements of happiness, the fundamentals, the basics, the primary colors, so to speak. And um, there are now three primary colors. There are five primary elements right. to, to happiness. And, uh, and here they are. The first element is spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being, you know, we could, of course, uh, find it through religion. However, uh, it doesn't have to come through religion. It comes through a sense of meaning and purpose in life and through being present in the here and now. So if I'm present to, um, to a, a blade of grass or to a person sitting in front of me and truly present in the here and now, this potentially is a spiritual experience. Um, then there is physical well-being. Physical well-being is about uh, nutrition. It's about uh, exercise. It's about sleep or rest and recovery in general. It's uh, about uh, touch. We are also physical beings. Um, next is intellectual well-being. So intellectual well-being is, for instance, about curiosity. You know, Pete, that people who ask many questions, who are constantly learning, they actually live longer. Uh, in other words, it strengthens our immune system. They're also happier. So learning and deeply engaging, whether it's with a text or with a work of art or with nature, deeply learning also contributes to our intellectual well-being and to our overall happiness. Then there is relational well-being. The number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Uh, relational well-being also has to do with the relationship we cultivate with ourselves, which is uh, obviously important. And finally, it's emotional well-being. And emotional well-being refers to our ability to deal with painful emotions, which are an inevitable part of life, of every life, as well as our ability to cultivate pleasurable emotions, whether it's joy, gratitude, love, and so on. So these five elements, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, that make up the acronym SPIRE, these are the five elements of a happy life. And when we pursue these elements, then what we're doing is we're indirectly pursuing happiness and contributing to our overall happiness, circumventing the paradox. Boy, this, this is excellent stuff. And I think right then and there, that can trigger things for listeners right away in terms of, aha, well, I've totally neglected maybe some spiritual practices or I've been eating out of boxes, like, you know, recently instead of having salads, etc. Or, hey, instead of really channeling my curiosity into rich, engaged learning stuff, I've just looking at headlines, which which aren't really deeply satisfying, you know, the intellectual uh, needs there, and then relationally and emotionally. So, so that's a nice lineup. I'm curious when it comes to dealing with negative emotions and cultivating positive emotions, I imagine there are some not so healthy ways you could try to do that and some better approaches. What are the do's and don'ts here? Yeah, so, so this is very important. You know, in, in many ways, I see the uh, foundation uh, of happiness. The foundation of happiness is, first of all, accepting unhappiness. Or more specifically, 
Um, when we encounter, when we experience painful emotions, what we need to do is embrace them, accept them. Now, how do we embrace and accept painful emotions? Well, we can uh, uh, shed a tear. That's one way of, uh, of expressing painful emotions. We can talk about them, whether with a therapist or coach or our uh, best friend or, uh, or partner. Or we can write about painful emotions. Uh, there's a lot of research, wonderful research by Jamie Pennybaker, Laura King, and, uh, and others on the value of journaling. And when we write about our most difficult experiences, traumatic experiences, um, we are expressing them. We're giving them space rather than rejecting them. And then they do not overstay their welcome. You know, there's a beautiful poem by Sufi poet Rumi from the 13th century called The Guest House. And in The Guest House, Rumi talks about how we need to welcome all thoughts, all emotions into our house, just like we would welcome guests. Why? Because they are messages from the beyond. Now, I don't know whether or not they are messages from the beyond, but what I do know is that when we accept them and embrace them and welcome them like we do guests, then they come in, we experience them, and then they leave. Whereas if we reject them, the paradox, once again here, is that they only intensify, grow stronger. Okay, thank you. Well, so I'd like to zoom into, in my own experience, some days I'll have, well, I call them the blahs. It's an acronym. It's that ordinary tasks that aren't that big of a deal. You know, call it like email or making dinner or something. On some days, they just feel a little extra blah, a little extra boring, a little extra lame, annoying, hard, or a hassle. And it's it's not that hard or annoying or lame, really, to do any of these things. But some days, they just feel like that, an extra dose. So what is your recommendation in terms of best practices when we're just having one of those days where there's some extra blah associated with normal stuff, what should we do? Yeah, so, you know, there's um, a lot of great research, uh, much of it done uh, in Carleton University uh, in Canada on procrastination. Uh, if you can believe it, there is actually a procrastination lab. I don't know whether they get any work done, but... but um, it, it exists and they actually do get a lot of work, a lot of great work done. And um, the most important research coming out of uh, the procrastination lab is, to my mind, is uh, what they have uh, coined the five-minute takeoff. The five-minute takeoff is about starting whatever it is that you want to do, even if you don't feel like doing it. Why? You see, procrastinators, and by the way, the majority of people would uh, classify themselves as procrastinators and would pay a high price for seeing themselves as procrastinators, meaning a high psychological price. So procrastinators have the mental schema, the model, that motivation must precede action that motivation must precede action. In other words, for me to act, to do things, I have to feel really motivated. Some people take it even uh, further extreme and their argument is that, or they believe that, inspiration must precede action. 
This is a false model, and this is a model that leads, inevitably, leads to procrastination. Because very often, you know, as you point out, we have those blah days. Very often we don't feel like doing the work, even if overall we like our work, or if it's not too taxing and even pleasant overall. We all have those days when we, we, we just don't feel like getting out of bed or, or working. And if one has the mental model that motivation must precede action, well, then there will be no action because there's no motivation. People who do not procrastinate or procrastinate little, because we all do some of it, they have the model the other way around. They understand, they recognize that action usually precedes motivation, that uh-huh. action needs to precede inspiration. In other words, even on days when they wake up and they don't feel like working, so what? We can still take action, even if we're not motivated, and they start doing it. That's the five-minute takeoff. And after five minutes, or it could be 10 or 20 minutes, motivation comes, energy comes, and then they continue to work. There is inertia that's created by the action. In other words, simply put, fake it till you make it or fake it till you become it. That is the best advice. And this is advice that I uh, heed and, and and many people do. And that's how you get work done. You know, I, I study uh, a lot about uh, the lives of writers, of, of authors, you know, because I can learn a lot from them. And inevitably, what the prolific writers do is they have set of rules when they write and how much they write. And it doesn't matter if they're inspired to write or they feel like writing or they're really motivated to write. It doesn't matter. They sit down and write. And if they have to fake it till they make it or fake it till they become it, then so be it. Okay. And in that five-minute guideline for the procrastinators, is there some magic to that number? Like that's kind of enough for the motivation to kick in pretty often or is it just sort of arbitrary? Yes and yes. So it is pretty arbitrary. However, for most people, five minutes is enough. And if it's not, then have another five minutes. You know, there are days when, uh, you know, a minute is enough. And there are other days when um, an hour is not enough, but it doesn't matter. You know, an hour is simply 12 five-minute sessions. That's true. That's true. Let's talk a little bit about being in the pandemic. That has taken a toll on people's happiness. Are there any particular threats or practices that are specifically relevant for this context? I think most of the things that are recommended for regular times are good for difficult times, only more so. For example, the rule of thumb in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the minimum amount of physical exercise that one should do is 30 minutes three times a week. You know, three times a week is a lot better than uh, two times a week, and it's not much worse than four times a week. So this would be the the, the rule of thumb. This is how much I used to uh, practice pre-pandemic. You know, three times a week, 30 minutes each, each time. During the pandemic, because stress levels are generally, for most people, higher I would recommend doing, you know, four or five times a week. This is, by the way, what what, what I am doing now. 
similarly with um, with uh, gratitudes. You know, if if usually you know even once a week of doing the gratitude exercise contributes to to happiness. During difficult times, uh, do it you know twice a week or seven days a week. Just do more of the basics. In other words, um, increase the dosage of the regular interventions, of the regular practices. Meditation, that's another very helpful practice. And again, meditation can be sitting down and focusing on the air going in and out, or it can be doing yoga, or it can be mindfully listening to your favorite music. These are all forms of, uh, of uh, mindful meditation. So if you do usually don't do it, well, that's a good time to start now. Or uh, or if you do it five minutes a day, you know, bring it up to 10 minutes a day. So go back to basics is what I recommend and be vigilant about them. You know, I often ask my students, when is the time that you're least likely to exercise? And invariably they, they say, oh, exams. Because uh, that's when we're we th- there's just too much pressure. I can't don't have time to go to the gym or you know go out for a run and then have to shower after that. And, you know, too time consuming. And my response to that is when you are stressed, exam period or pandemic, this is the time to exercise. Even more important than uh, during quote unquote normal times. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And thinking about these practices. I'm curious, are there any particular practices to do at work, whether it's mental or the means by which you approach a meeting or an email or the writing or kind of whatever maybe your your deep focused work is? Any key ways that we can do work better from a happiness perspective? Very much so. Very much so. So let me begin with the uh, brief uh, tips, some some of which uh, you know I've already mentioned, and then and then go on to something which I think is so so important, and I'll elaborate. So first of all, simply at the end of each day, write down one thing that you made progress on. This uh, simple practice was introduced, described by Teresa Amabile, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, in her book The Progress Principle, and she found that people who focus on the progress that they make at work. And it doesn't have to be something major. It can be, you know, I cleared my desk or uh, or my inbox or uh, I had a good client meeting or whatever. Uh, people who do it regularly are not just, they're not just more satisfied with their work. They're also more productive as well as more creative in, uh, in the workplace. Then there is another very important element and that is, probably the number one reason that uh, companies invite external speakers or psychologists in particular to, um, to, to speak is because of stress. Before there was the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, there was the stress pandemic. Uh, burnout is a very common phenomenon in, in the workplace today. There is fortunately something that we can do about it. You see, Many people perceive stress as highly problematic. In fact, many people talk about stress as the silent killer, as uh, the destroyer of uh, innovation, creativity, joy in the workplace. However, once my colleagues and I started to study stress, we realized that actually stress in and of itself is not a problem. 
that actually stress potentially is good for us. Think about the following analogy. So uh, let's say you go to the gym and you're lifting weights. What are you doing to your muscles when you lift weights? You're stressing them. Now, is that a bad thing? Not at all. On the contrary, you go to the gym one day, two days later, you go back to the gym, you lift more weights. Two days after that, you, you continue your routine. And over time, you actually become stronger, healthier, better off than you were before. Stress is not the problem. The problem begins when you go to the gym and you lift weights and then more weights and then more weights. And the following day, you do the same more and more and more. That's when the problems begin. That's when you get injured. That's when you get weaker rather than stronger. The problem, therefore, is not the stress. The problem, rather, is the lack of recovery. And that's a problem in the gym, physiologically, or in life, in the workplace, psychologically. What do we need to do if we want to fulfill our potential at work is find more times for recovery. Now, recovery can come in the form of uh, you know, a 15-minute break every 90 minutes or, or two hours, whether it's uh, uh, a cup of coffee or chatting with colleagues or, uh, or just hanging out or exercising. Uh, it can even be 30 seconds of uh, you know, uh, closing our eyes and taking three deep breaths, you know, five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out. That in and of itself can shift us from the fight or flight stress response or to what Herbert Benson from Harvard Medical School calls the relaxation response. Because the problem is not the stress. The problem is the absence of recovery. Recovery is also getting a good night's sleep. There's a lot of research on the benefits of sleep for uh, productivity, creativity, of course, happiness for physical health, mental health. Uh, taking a day off is an important form of recovery. Vacation, of course, is an important form of recovery. And if we punctuate our crazy busy lives with periods of recovery, then we can uh, make the most of uh, our energy and we can uh, be at our best more of the time. One more thing that is related to, um, to recovery. One of the reasons why we experience so much stress in our day-to-day -day work is because of multitasking. And multitasking is fine. We do it. It's, it's, it's natural. It's important at times. However, what we also need is to create what I've come to call islands of sanity throughout the day. Islands of sanity are times when we are single tasking, when we're only doing one thing, when we're focusing on it, when we're mindful. And it could be doing email, and it could be being in conversation with a colleague, and it could be uh, writing the organizational strategy. It doesn't matter. But single tasking, island of sanity amidst all the crazy busy multitasking. Mm-hmm. Well, Tal, there's been so much good stuff you're sharing, and I know you're sharing a whole lot more in your Happiness Studies Academy. What's this program all about? Well, the Happiness Studies Academy offers certificate programs in uh, that uh, respond to two questions. The first question is, how can I become happier? The second question is, how can I help others 
become happier. And of course, through happiness, given the relationship between happiness and success, we also become more productive, creative, improve our relationships, and so on. So the Happiness Studies Academy offers practical, applied interventions that we can um, employ in our personal lives as well as our professional lives. Super. And so that's uh, conducted online or there classmates or groups or cohorts or how's that go down? So it's uh, all online and uh, it's on our website, which is happiness studies, one word, dot academy. Okay. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Albert Camus, in the midst of winter, I found within me an invincible summer. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So I think my, my favorite uh, research is um, one that it's a joint study that was conducted by the University of British Columbia and uh, Harvard Business School. And what they found was um, that the best way to increase our happiness levels is through giving, by contributing to others, by helping, by being kind and generous. And I love that because what it does is it takes the uh, whole field of happiness studies to a place where it's not just a solipsistic, uh, individualistic pursuit, but rather it's a pursuit that contributes to our own well-being as well as to society. It's a holistic, W-H, holistic pursuit. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? I'd have to say um, Marianne Evans, a.k.a. George Eliot, Middlemarch. Okay. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Realize, recognize that becoming happier follows the same trajectory, the same routine as becoming better at any skill, which means we need to invest time and effort. It's not enough to just know what leads to happiness. What we need to do is practice, implement, do the work. Well, Tal, this has been a treat. I wish you much happiness in all your adventures. Thank you very much, Pete. And thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I love what Tal had to share, especially that acronym SPIRE. It really is a handy framework in terms of, you know, if I'm feeling a little blue, it's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, I see I've underinvested in one of these areas, whether it's spiritually or physically or intellectually or relationshipally or how you're managing and processing those emotions. So super handy there. Think about the spire next time you want to kick it up a notch in the mood, joy, happiness department. I think it'll serve you well. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP625. And if you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll get new episodes delivered automatically on your favorite podcast app player. And it's real handy. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.